Episode 9. Past, present, and future tense. We've made it from the care home to the bungalow without a hitch. And now we're sitting side by side, looking out on the garden. We've been teleported from one world to another, quicker than either of us can comprehend. And it's only half past two. I feel I've got away with daylight robbery. I should be calm and content. Instead, I feel high as a kite. And I just can't seem to stop talking. I want to take you out and show you all the things I've done. Planted plants for you and I think I've got the fountain going for you too. Mm-hmm. But you're home now and I'm going to take care of you. With the carer's help. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to make you well. I'll do my next job. Get you feeling a bit brighter. There's still almost four hours to go before the first care call at 6.30 this evening. And I've got to fill those hours in a meaningful way, preferably without talking the poor woman to death. Want to have a wander through the house? Yeah. Okay. Here, have a look. <coughs> make you a cup of tea or something. What's that scraping sound? That's your foot. I can't have that down there. It's going to take me a while to get used to all this, isn't it? Mm. Over here, I'll put pictures of the girls there, look. And if we go through to the dining room, I'll turn the bed round so you can see out. I think it'll be nicer. More pictures. Pictures of all the family, including Dad. And I've done a big tidy in the kitchen. I want to ask her how it feels to be home, but I'm afraid to ask. It's way too soon, and above all, I'm not at all convinced she really knows she is home. Nor am I sure that my new personality, part desperate estate agent, part camp bellhop, is helping the orientation process. There. Everything just as you left it. Eh? All clean, I hope, and neat and tidy. (laughs) It's all a bit of a surprise. You're going to be all right with me? No? Oh, I hope you will. I'll do my best to look after you. I'll make some tea, maybe, shall I? Maybe a bit of cake. Oh, your hands feel cold. Must be the first time you've been out of that. So. As you can hear, things are pretty much under control. With the kettle on and cake waiting, you can assume tea bags are being placed in a teacup for me and the plastic wing handle cup, just like the ones in the care home, purchased from a living aid supplier online for mum. You can imagine me wheeling mum through to the living room and returning for the assembled refreshments. Settled for the moment, I will calmly minister tea and cake to my new charge and sip tea myself. There's time to tell you a story. This happened only a couple of weeks ago when I was visiting mum in the care home. I remember I was feeling rather chipper that day. Arrangements for the homecoming were going well. I'd signed up for plenty of fish, the dating website, 
and I thought I might do a little fishing that very evening. One of the carers walked past and said to me, oh, I've got something for you, a letter to your mum. You might want to read it to her. I wondered who would be writing. For the briefest moment, I thought it could be from my father, though that was clearly absurd. When the carer returned bearing the letter, I thought it was from my ex-partner. Somehow that fact alone stunned me. Let me avoid real names for everyone's sake, so though it disturbs me enormously to make the change, let's call this lovely woman Jodie. We'd spent seven years together after my marriage had ended. Seven pretty happy years, as it happens. Though in the end, the relationship had founded on the sharp rocks of her family's needs and resentment of me and our inability to forge a life of our own. I'd had no contact with her for six months or more. She'd been out to visit me in France, a half-hearted attempt to patch together a relationship that had ended long before. The proviso was that we keep the rekindling a secret from her family, and especially her mother. A last fling, an oasis in the desert. A la recherche du temps perdu. Call it what you like. We swam naked in rivers and the sea, and we laughed, and it all seemed hopeful in some way, briefly. A couple of months later, after desultory Skype conversations and phone calls and pathetic attempts to hide the evidence from Jodie's family, especially the old dragon herself, I gave up hope and wrote the Dear John letter. You can read it on the website. Not a bad example of the genre, I think, especially given I've more often been the dumpy than the dumper. But it was a horrible thing to do. So, as I took Jodie's letter from the already open envelope, I didn't know quite what to expect, but it soon became clear that this missive had nothing but the most banal record of a month or two of family life, work and holiday plans. When I got back to the bungalow and evening began to close in, I thought a lot about Jodie and forgot all about going fishing. I thought I should write to her and thank her for her kindness to my mother. I thought she'd be interested to know that my father had died, that I was back in the country, living in my parents' house, not much more than an hour's drive from where she lived. And I thought she might be interested to know that I planned to get my mum out of the home and take care of her myself. She'd always had a soft spot for my mother. Their birthdays were only two days apart, and whether because of the stars or not, they shared in common many characteristics as fellow Aquarians. Both were known as exceptionally nice people. Both were known as exceptionally tolerant people, their tolerance often abused by those nearest and dearest to them. Both were frequently exhorted by others to stand up for themselves, get a bit of backbone and kick back against oppression. All of this is further evidence, if anyone needed, that boys in general, and this one in particular, might show a tendency to find girls like their mothers unusually attractive. Of course, the parallels go further insofar as Jodie's mother played the same malign role in attempting to dictate her daughter's love life as my grandmother had done with my own father. All of which taken together makes me, if not actually my father, a version of him. This is not an altogether salutary thought, especially as I live in his house and sleep in his bed, and one that merits a moment's consideration in the interests of natural justice. He, my father that is, felt the full force of my grandmother's will through her interference in their marriage and a less than kind judgment of his character. I felt very much the same about Jodie's mother 
and her own corrosive attempts to undermine my relationship with her daughter. She said she preferred Jodie's previous boyfriend, who'd been able to get tickets for the polo. But that's all in the past now. Here, today, so I thought to myself, Jodie and I are within spitting distance. And oh, how sweet it would be, how appropriate to the situation, indeed how easy and convenient, I thought, were Jodie to respond to the restrained email I was carefully composing. A glass of Rioja sitting on my father's desk beside the keyboard and images of Jodie materialising in front of me. I thought I might refer to the letter in my email, to her kindness and to Mum's health, and avoid the deeper past. I thought I might mention the upcoming celebration of life and say I'd let her know when a date was fixed. That way she might respond out of duty, if not affection. If she said yes, she might even feel it an icebreaker, a drink at the pub, a light supper here in the kitchen. She often visited this bungalow when we brought home-cooked meals from my parents' freezer. It would be a good idea. When it was done, with scarce a twinge of conscience, I pressed send. You'll hardly need a footnote to tell you that Jodie never replied. I got exactly what I deserved. Nothing at all. I waited a week and sent a follow-up stating that I had no intention to intrude on her life but would take her silence as an indication that she would prefer no contact at all. And then I waited. Again. And again. I heard nothing. I've still heard nothing. I'd made a cynical attempt to bring her back into my life because I was lonely and because I knew I was mad to be signing up for dating websites, and because I didn't want to give up or give in or maybe let go. The irony is, of course, were it not for the breakup with Jodie, and before that, the end of my marriage, were it not for being adrift in France, writing a book, single, unemployed, with grown children, I'd never have been able to contemplate becoming my mother's carer. Were it not for everything I've lost or squandered along the way, I wouldn't be here now and nor would my mother. Right. <coughs> the technical term is dysphagia. The reality is your loved one apparently choking to death in front of you, and what's worse, because of you. Because of a stupid obsession with good food because you think you know better than the experts and can somehow circumvent nature with wishful thinking. The remains of my homemade lasagna, chopped up into tiny squares on the plate, has scarcely been touched. I'm standing, or rather leaning, legs braced, my face flushed and my breathing fast, partly with the effort of maintaining her in this position, but also through sheer panic. There's a procedure, I don't even know its name, and I haven't a clue how to administer it. Something I maybe should have thought of learning before this particular moment. Mum, whose own skin colour is changing before my eyes from red to purple, is pouring forth streams of clear sputum. And there's nothing I can do except to mop it up with tissues. And all at once I'm scared and angry with myself. <coughs> Little by little she recovers. I'm aware it will soon be time for the first care call and the move to bed. 
I'm longing for anyone to arrive and take over. As we wait, I try with a bowl of ice cream in place of the lasagna, offering small spoons and watching carefully for ill effects. Thank God the ice cream seems to be working, and all my attention is on the process, to the point that I notice I'm opening my own mouth as I will my mother to accept the next spoonful. So when a doorbell rings, a double chime catches me completely by surprise. Through the window of the dining room, I can see two figures in the blue uniforms of carers standing in the glass porch beyond. That is the sound of a fine common air being poured. Chilean, as it happens. Um, I'm embarrassed to admit, though, it's not the first glass from the bottle, but the last. I, I honestly don't know what to say. The coughing and the choking was bad enough. Um, I thought I'd been saved by the bell when the carers arrived, but that proved pretty intense too. Um, there were two. Two to get to grips with us and the place and the kit. Well, that's what they told me. And they were lovely. They were fine. Uh, but there were two of them. I thought I'd better leave them to it and offer them coffee or something. But even from the kitchen, I could hear the debate going on, how the sling attaches, which way up it goes. I, surely they must know what they're doing, I thought. Um, but not so much, as it turns out. Um, Leanne actually put her head round the door and, without much embarrassment at all, asked me if I had any plasters. I remember her words, actually. Mum's caught her knee on the hoist, she said. It was only when I was on my hands and knees below the bathroom sink, scrabbling for plasters and death hole or savlon, I began to feel incensed. I mean, mum caught her knee? How does that work, exactly? A woman who can scarcely raise her arms, let alone move her legs, what, she tried to make a break for the hills? Well, I took the plasters through to the dining room. My mum was hanging from the machine. And I could see her legs were buckling under the strain of holding herself there. And the other, Cara, Caro, Carol, I, I can't remember. And she was holding Mum under the arms as, as she and Leanne shoved the hoist so that we could lower her into a sitting position on the bed. I mean, I could see straight away that the sling was upside down. For some reason, I said nothing. The graze is just below the knee, on the side of her leg. The wound isn't especially big or deep, um, but I had to watch Leanne patting a little flap of transparent skin, like sort of onion skin paper, back into place uh, before putting the plaster on. Something about that piece of skin, you know, so dry and thin, it suddenly made the whole scene incredibly sad. See my mum's old body, so fragile and and delicate, tied to this metal machine with its unforgiving hardness and, and sharp edges and the uniforms pulling and pushing and all medieval, institutional, mechanical, everything I didn't want. It just all conspired, I suppose, to undermine my sense that this kind of stupid plan could ever work. I mean, I, I know it's only day one and accidents happen, right? Everyone's nervous, working in a new situation, but there's day two and three and four to go. I don't, I don't know whether to be angry or upset or whether these kind of injuries will be commonplace. Mum didn't seem to have felt any pain or discomfort with the greys and, and I think the plaster's doing its job. I know one thing. 
I'm not going to be recording much of these care calls for, for mum's sake and now for the carers. And if I want to tell it like it is, I think it's better I do that for myself. It just does rattle your confidence. First care call is 7.15. Uh, with a hangover, guaranteed it seems. But it's a reality check. I mean, what have I been thinking? <laughs> Not being here so much, but the whole internet dating business. I mean, what planet, really? I can't even begin to think about all that. But what about the night to come? When I, when I hear her, she's sleeping now. We had more coughing when I fed her in bed, even though I'd opted for soup. I laid her down, got the pillows under her knees, stroked her head for a while. Poof, I don't know. I'll leave the bedroom door open, uh, mine and hers. My uh, my daughters used to call me, actually, Ninja Dad, because I'd hear them, slightest cough, getting up, whatever. I've never been a good sleeper. Terrible, terrible sleeper, in fact. Um, and I know the wine doesn't help. Uh, how else do I wind down? I said when I took this on, I would only do it if I thought I could do it with a modicum of grace, a bit of zen, a little bit of humour, maybe, inject a bit of life, Family, great outdoors, gin and tonic in the evenings, all the things that the care home didn't offer. I must say that seems a million miles away now. I should forget it. Focus on the here and now and sleep. Anyways up, right? That's what the song says. Don't desert me, will you? I know you won't desert me, especially as the next couple of weeks will have flown by. Things will have settled and the panic receded by the time we get together again. And if I'm not exactly on top of things, at least there's a routine emerging. And oh, there's a visit to look forward to. Ex-wife, two daughters and Maisie the dog, all of whom stop by to lighten the load. been listening to Me Too Mama, written, voiced and produced by the author, who must remain anonymous for the sake of his mum. Me Too Mama is a family affair. The assistant producer is the author's daughter, Leah, and the associate producer is the author's sister and now co-carer, Karen. Title music is by Wes Hutchinson, with incidental music by Chris Horgan, Akash Gandhi and Huma Huma, all stars of YouTube's audio library, who very generously make their work available to poor producers like me. Original music is by Leah. This podcast is a Me Too Mama production. All rights reserved.